You are what you eat. Food is your best medicine. You've probably heard these sayings before, but what do they mean? You don't have two long zucchinis for legs, and the doctor doesn't say, take two cloves of garlic every four hours and call me in the morning. Although that might not be such a bad idea at times. Hi, I'm Mark Timmon, the Healthy Geezer. I have a master's degree in clinical nutrition, and I've been studying the nutrition and biochemistry behind health and disease for over 50 years. If you want to know how to build better health and how to protect yourself against disease, then this is the place for you. Welcome to the Healthy Geezer podcast. This is episode 10, Digestion Top to Bottom. The phrases, you are what you eat, and food is your best medicine, are more than just figures of speech. They drive home the importance of the nutrients in food. The nutrients from the food you eat are reassembled into your physical structure and run the biochemistry that keeps you both alive and well. So, let's step outside the body and get a grip on just where health begins. I am not talking about the farmer's field. I am talking about your gastrointestinal tract from top to bottom. You see, we are all somewhat like a stack of donuts. Look down the center of that stack and you see a tube. Stand tall and you will realize that you have a tube running right through you, beginning at your mouth and ending at your anus. That means anything inside the tube is still outside your body. What is passing through makes a big difference to your health. And what makes you healthy is unique unto you. So let's understand what happens as food traverses the tube so we can better understand how to treat ourselves. As much fun as it is to eat, you're not just taking in food for fun. Food satisfies a genuine physical need. Eating food and drinking fluids often begins with the sensation of either hunger or thirst. The amount of food that we eat and the timing of our meals are, or should be, driven by physical needs. Appetite is another powerful impetus, but is often unreliable. Appetite is influenced by our food preferences and the psychological cues to eat. In other words, you can become interested in food, pursue food, and possibly eat too much food without actually needing nourishment or being hungry. Everything from your social situation to your cultural heritage will impact what you put on your plate or throw down your gullet. The dinner hour may be precisely that in your home, for example, with dinner prepared and on the table at the same time each day, whether you are truly in need of food or not. But beyond these external factors, there are qualities in food that affect your desire to eat them. Taste and aroma are two of these qualities. We develop preferences for certain foods. Taste plays a part. Delicious food is enjoyable. But what is taste? There are five basic categories of taste. Sweet, salty, sour, bitter, and savory. Most taste buds are located on the tongue, but additional taste buds are found in the throat and elsewhere in the mouth. Food scientists estimate that each of us has at least 10,000 taste buds. A dog, by the way, has only about 1,700 taste buds, which might explain why we see them chewing on sticks rather than attending class at the Culinary Institute. Our taste buds, most sensitive to sweet flavors, are on the tip of the tongue. Sour and salty are on the sides, and taste buds sensing the maximum bitter sensations are on the back of the tongue. The taste for savory flavors is distributed throughout the mouth. However, 
Some people are not aware of, or are not sensitive to, this taste sensation. To clarify, a savory food is full of flavor, delicious, and tasty, usually something that undergoes more specific or elaborate preparation. In the world of cuisine, savory is also often used to mean the opposite of sweet or salty. Even though each of us probably has our own favorite foods, we share some taste traits in general. We all have an innate preference for sweet, salty, and fatty foods. There is an explanation for this. Sugar elicits universal pleasure, even among infants, and the brain seeks pleasure. When we eat sugar, the neurotransmitter dopamine and several opioid peptides in the brain are released. These neural messages are associated with pleasure, reward, happiness, and love. Salt provides two important electrolytes, sodium and chloride, and can stimulate the appetite. High-fat foods have rich textures and aromas that round out the flavors of food. Thus, we tend to enjoy rich sauces, gravies, salad dressings, fatty meats, and the like. Sometimes our food preferences and our nutritional needs conflict. We may eat too much because the food is so pleasurable. If that behavior gets us in trouble, and a need arises to lose weight or reduce salt or fat intake, we come face to face with the challenge to control food choices. How does the brain recognize taste? When food is consumed, portions of the food are dissolved in saliva. These fluids then make contact with the tongue's surface. Cells of the taste buds send a message to the brain. The brain then translates the nerve impulses into taste sensations that you recognize. Aromas and flavors enhance the pleasure of eating. We detect food aroma through the nose and, as we eat, when food odors enter the mouth, migrate to the back of the throat and rise into the nasal cavities. The average person has about 10 million to 20 million olfactory cells in the nasal cavity, making the average person capable of distinguishing 2,000 to 4,000 aromas. I wonder how food would smell if we had up to the 300 million olfactory cells of a dog. Nevertheless, food loses some of its appeal when you can't smell it due to a cold or due to some other form of nasal congestion. Both the taste and aroma of a food contribute to its flavor. The term flavor also refers to the complete food experience. For example, when you eat a Three Musketeers candy bar, you sense a sweet taste, but the flavor is chocolate. The presence of fat enhances the flavor of foods. When the fat content increases, the intensity of the flavor also increases as many aromatic compounds are soluble in fat. Increased fat content also causes the flavor of food to last longer compared with flavor compounds dissolved in water. Flavors dissolved in water are quickly detected but also quickly dissipated. This explains why most people prefer premium ice cream over frozen popsicles. It also explains why several low-fat foods have an acceptable flavor, but they are not as delicious as their high-fat counterparts. After you eat something, you must digest it. The simple definition of digestion is the breaking down of foods into absorbable components in the gastrointestinal tract. Food is softened with moisture and heat and then broken down into smaller particles by chewing and exposing them to enzymes through a multi-step digestive process. The gastrointestinal, or GI, tract consists of the mouth, esophagus, stomach, small intestine, large intestine, and other organs. 
The main roles of the GI tract are to 1. Break down food into its smallest components, 2. Absorb the nutrients, and 3. Prevent microorganisms or other harmful compounds consumed with food from getting inside and entering the tissues of the body. We only want good things to pass from outside the body to the inside. The GI tract is about 23 feet long. Straightened out, that would be almost as high as a two-story building. The many circular folds, grooves, and projections in the stomach and intestines provide an extensive surface area over which absorption can occur. The innermost cells lining the GI tract have a very brief lifespan. They function for three to five days, and then they are shed into the lumen, the interior of the intestinal tubing, and are normally replaced with new healthy cells. There are two primary forms of digestion, mechanical and chemical. Mechanical digestion involves chewing, grinding, and breaking food apart in the mouth so that it can be comfortably swallowed. The muscular activity and rhythmic contractions, or peristalsis, that move food through the GI tract and mix it with enzymes are also part of mechanical digestion. Chemical digestion involves using digestive juices and enzymes to break down food into absorbable nutrients that are small enough to enter the cells of the GI tract, blood, or lymph tissues. Digestion sets the stage for absorption. Once foods have been completely broken down, the nutrients they contain are released and ready to be used by the cells of the body. In order to reach the cells, however, they have to leave the GI tract and be carried to other parts of the body. To accomplish this, nutrients are absorbed through the walls of the intestines and into the body's two transport systems, the circulatory and lymph systems. They are then taken to the liver for processing before moving on to their destination. The body is remarkably efficient when it comes to absorbing nutrients. Under normal conditions, you digest and absorb 92 to 97% of the nutrients from your food. I find that astounding. The organs of the GI tract each play a unique and crucial role in digestion. Step 1. The process of digestion begins when you first see, smell, or think about a food that you want to eat. Salivary glands in your mouth release saliva, a watery fluid that helps soften the food you are about to eat. It contains much more than water, however. Saliva contains a variety of electrolytes, including sodium, potassium, calcium, magnesium, bicarbonate, and phosphates. Also found in saliva are immunoglobulins, proteins, enzymes, mucins, and nitrogenous products such as urea and ammonia. Among the enzymes are talin, a starch-digesting enzyme that breaks down starch into simpler sugars such as maltose and dextrin that can be further broken down in the small intestine. About 30% of starch digestion takes place in the mouth, so chew your food well to reduce the likelihood of methane formation further along the line. Salivary glands also secrete salivary lipase to begin fat digestion. Once you take a bite and begin to chew, your teeth cut and grind the food into smaller pieces and, with your tongue, mix them with saliva. Saliva helps dissolve small food particles and allows us to comfortably swallow previously dry food. Salivary mucus helps lubricate the food, helps it stick together, and protects the inside of the mouth. Once food has been adequately chewed, 
The tongue pushes it to the back of the mouth and into the pharynx. Swallowing seems simple because we do it hundreds of times a day, but it is actually a complicated process. Pushing chewed food into the pharynx is a voluntary act you control. Once the food mass, called a bolus, enters the pharynx, the swallowing reflex kicks in and you no longer control the action. Everyone has probably experienced an episode of swallowing gone wrong in which food accidentally goes down the wrong pipe. When this happens, you find yourself coughing, trying to expel food fragments. It is because the normal mechanism that protects your trachea, or windpipe leading to your lungs, didn't work properly. Usually, a small flap called the epiglottis closes off your trachea during swallowing. The epiglottis ensures that food and drink go down the correct pipe. The esophagus leads to the stomach, the trachea to the lungs. When the epiglottis doesn't work properly, food can get lodged in the trachea and potentially result in choking. Once successfully swallowed, a bolus of food is pushed down your esophagus by peristalsis. When the bolus of food reaches the stomach, the lower part of the esophagus relaxes, allowing the bolus to enter the stomach. Semi-solid or partially chewed food, a bite of meat for example, passes through the esophagus in about eight seconds. Soft food and liquids pass through in about one to two seconds. The esophagus narrows at the bottom, just above the stomach, and ends at a sphincter called the lower esophageal sphincter. Under normal circumstances, when we swallow food, the lower esophageal sphincter relaxes and allows food to pass into the stomach. The stomach also relaxes to comfortably receive the food. After food enters the stomach, the lower esophageal sphincter should close. If it doesn't, hydrochloric acid from the stomach may flow back into the esophagus and irritate its lining. This acid reflux is commonly referred to as heartburn because it usually causes a burning sensation in the middle of the chest. Acid reflux will probably be experienced by everyone at some point in life. Having heartburn now and then is no cause for alarm, but if you have acid reflux more than twice a week over a period of several weeks or constantly take heartburn medications and antacids, yet your symptoms keep returning, then chronic acid reflux is suspected. Chronic acid reflux and heartburn point toward a diagnosis of esophageal reflux disease, or GERD, G-E-R-D. If you suspect that you have GERD, seek medical intervention to avoid long-term damage and remove the risk of esophageal cancer. Moving along from the esophagus, the stomach continues mechanical digestion by turning and contracting to mix food with digestive juices. The food is continually mixed for several hours. The stomach also has a role in chemical digestion in that it produces powerful gastric secretions. The gastric juice is made up of water, hydrochloric acid, more electrolytes, sodium, potassium, calcium, phosphate, sulfate, and bicarbonate, and, of course, more mucus and enzymes. Mucus helps protect the lining of the stomach from irritation or damage at the hands of hydrochloric acid and lubricates the path for the digesting food mass to move along. Gastric hydrochloric acid, secreted by the parietal cells, lowers your stomach's pH to about two or less after food arrives. The acid dissolves lots of things, including cartilaginous food bones and small bone fragments of larger animals. It enhances absorption of minerals, breaks down connective tissue in meat, 
and we should love it because it inactivates microorganisms, bacteria, viruses, fungi, and parasites that arrive on the food we eat. Gastric acid also activates the protein-digesting enzyme pepsin. Inactive pepsin, or pepsinogen, is secreted by the chief cells of the stomach. Yeah, they're actually called chief cells. Subsequent action by hydrochloric acid from the parietal cells turns pepsinogen into active pepsin. Pepsin goes on to break down proteins into smaller clusters of amino acids called peptides. Another enzyme sent into the fray by the chief cells, gastric lipase, breaks down a few triglycerides into shorter chain fatty acids. The majority of triglycerides, however, are broken down in the small intestine with the help of another enzyme. But I'm not done yet. We find intrinsic factor among the stomach's secretions too. Intrinsic factor is a glycoprotein, also produced by the parietal cells, that is needed for the absorption of vitamin B12. Gastrin hormone is produced by G cells, appropriately named, in the lining of the stomach and upper small intestine. During a meal, gastrin stimulates the stomach's parietal cells to release gastric acid. Gastrin also stimulates healthy restorative growth of the stomach lining and increases the muscle contractions of the gut to aid digestion. Additionally, gastrin that passes out of the stomach with the disintegrating food, plus gastrin secreted in the upper small intestine, can stimulate the gallbladder to empty its store of bile and the pancreas to secrete enzymes. Bile and pancreatic enzymes help break down and absorb food in the small intestine. More on that later. The stomach is certainly a hive of activity. What you chewed up and swallowed is becoming unrecognizable. The swallowed bolus of food soon becomes chyme, a semi-liquid substance that contains the digestive secretions plus the original food. The stomach can expand to hold two to four liters of chyme. That is a little more than one half to one whole gallon. Have you ever noticed that some foods keep you feeling full longer than others? I would expect that to be the case if you had a gallon of chyme churning in your stomach. But in general, foods high in carbohydrate exit the stomach faster and therefore make you feel less full than foods high in protein, fat, or fiber. Most liquids, carbohydrates, and low-fiber foods require minimal digestive activity, are easier to absorb, and have less surface area due to low-fiber content. Similarly, low-calorie foods exit the stomach faster than concentrated high-calorie foods. This is because low-calorie foods frequently require minimal digestion. For example, a lightly sweetened cup of tea, a low-calorie beverage, requires less digestion than a high-calorie, nutrient-dense milkshake or smoothie. Digesting the tea involves only the breakdown of the sugar sucrose into its component simple sugars of fructose and glucose. In contrast, digesting the milkshake involves the breaking down of fat, protein, and carbohydrate. As digestion continues, peristaltic contractions push the chyme toward the lower part of the stomach. As the chyme accumulates near the pyloric sphincter, the muscular sphincter relaxes and the chyme gradually enters the small intestine. Approximately 125 milliliters, that's like one teaspoon of chyme, is released into the small intestine every 30 seconds during digestion. The pyloric sphincter prevents chyme from exiting the stomach too soon and it prevents intestinal contents from returning into the stomach. 
Most digestion and absorption occur in the small intestine. The small intestine is a narrow, long, coiled, tubular chamber in the abdomen. It consists of three segments, the duodenum, jejunum, and ileum, and extends from the pyloric sphincter at the top to the large intestine at the bottom. The first segment, the duodenum, is approximately 10 inches long. The second segment, the jejunum, is about 8 feet long, and the final region, the ileum, is about 12 feet long. The small in small intestine obviously refers to its diameter, not its length. The small intestine is actually the primary organ for digestion and absorption. It has tremendous surface area compared with the stomach. Let me give you some curious facts for your arsenal of trivial knowledge. The surface area of the stomach is 800 square centimeters. The surface area of the small intestine is about 250 square meters, 3,125 times larger. And the surface area of a tennis court is 195.65 square meters, only 78.26% the surface area of the small intestine. No wonder Thanksgiving dinner can leave you feeling like you're carrying center court at Wimbledon in your belly. Tennis aside, the small intestine's digestive secretions do most of the work when it comes to breaking down food into absorbable nutrients. The interior of the small intestine is covered with thousands of small projections resembling fingers called villi. The villi increase the surface area of the intestinal lining and mix the partially digested chyme with intestinal secretions. Each individual villus contains a cluster of blood capillaries, lymph vessels, and nerve fibers. The villi are covered by even smaller projections called microvilli, which provide additional surface area and maximize nutrient absorption. The tiny microvilli give the intestinal lining a fuzzy appearance and are referred to as the brush border. The lining of the small intestine is also arranged in unique circular folds which further increase the absorptive surface area. The circular folds cause the chyme to spiral down through the small intestine rather than merely glide along in a straight line. Both mechanical and chemical digestion occur in the small intestine. The mechanical part occurs through peristalsis, segmentation, and pendulum movement. Peristalsis is a muscular movement that helps propel the contents through the GI tract. Segmentation is a slashing motion that thoroughly mixes the chyme with the chemical secretions of the intestine. Pendulum movement is a constrictive wave that involves both forward and reverse movements and enhances nutrient absorption. Together, these three actions move the chyme through the small intestine at a rate of one centimeter per minute. Depending on the amount of food and the type of food consumed, the contact time in the small intestine is about three to 10 hours. Then it moves on to the large intestine. Once the chyme has passed through the small intestine, it comes to the ileocecal sphincter, which serves as the gateway to its next digestive destination, the large intestine. The primary purpose of the ileocecal sphincter is to prevent backflow of fecal contents from the large intestine into the ileum, the end segment of the small intestine. It is in the ileum that vitamin B12 is finally absorbed, by the way. In general, the ileocecal sphincter is strong and resists reverse pressure. About 750 milliliters, that's about three cups, 
of unabsorbed residue enters the large intestine each day. The slow entry of this residue from the small to the large intestine enables the body to maximize nutrient absorption. By the time food enters the large intestine, it has been digested and the majority of the nutrients have been absorbed. But the large intestine serves some important functions, including the absorption of water, production of a few vitamins, absorption of important electrolytes, and the formation and storage of fecal material. The large intestine is about five feet long and two and a half inches in diameter. It looks and acts much different than the small intestine in that it does not contain villi or microvilli and is not tightly coiled. Further, the large intestine does not secrete or use digestive enzymes and hormones. Rather, the chemical digestion that takes place in the large intestine is due to the efforts of bacteria. The large intestine produces mucus that protects the cells and acts as a lubricant for fecal matter. The cells of the large intestine, however, absorb water and electrolytes much more efficiently than do the cells of the small intestine. As with the small intestine, there are also three segments to the large intestine. They are the cecum, colon, and rectum. The cecum is a small pouch-like area that has the appendix hanging from one end. It forms the first part of the large intestine and connects the small intestine to the colon. The middle section, or colon, is the largest part of the large intestine. As a point of clarification, the entire large intestine is often referred to as the colon, but the colon is truly only the largest segment of the large intestine. The colon includes the ascending, transverse, and descending, and sigmoid regions as it wraps around the abdominal cavity. These regions are relatively long and straight. Most of the vitamin production and absorption of water and electrolytes occur within the first half of the colon. The last half of the colon stores fecal matter. The colon receives about one liter of food material each day from the cecum. That's almost two ounces more than a quart and consists of water, undigested or unabsorbed food particles, indigestible residues and fibers, and bacteria. It slowly and gently mixes these intestinal contents and absorbs the majority of the fluids presented to it. The colon gradually produces a semi-solid material that is reduced to about 200 grams, that's about seven ounces, of fecal matter. Materials in the intestine pass through the colon within 12 to 70 hours, depending on the person's age, health, diet, and fiber intake. Bacteria in the colon play a role in producing some vitamins, including the B vitamin, biotin, and vitamin K. Bacteria also ferment some of the undigested and unabsorbed dietary carbohydrates into simpler compounds, methane gas, carbon dioxide, and hydrogen. Similarly, some of the colon's bacteria break down undigested fiber to produce various short-chain fatty acids, especially acetic acid, butyric acid, and propionic acid. These are used to fuel the rapid cell growth needed to repair the delicate mucosal lining. Amino acids that reach the colon are converted to hydrogen, sulfides, some fatty acids, and other chemical compounds. As in the small intestine, the colon moves contents through via peristalsis and segmentation. Peristalsis occurs within the ascending colon, but the waves of contractions are quite slow. The mixing motion of segmentation allows the large intestine to progressively absorb fluids. The stool is propelled forward until it reaches the rectum, the final 8-inch portion of the large intestine, where it is stored. 
When accumulated stool distends the rectum, the pressure stimulates stretch receptors, which in turn stimulate the defecation reflex. Nerve impulses of the rectum communicate with the rectum's muscles, leading to relaxation of the internal sphincter of the anus. The anus is at the end of the rectum and controlled by two sphincters, an internal and external sphincter. Under normal conditions, the anal sphincters are closed. Periodically, the anal sphincters will relax. Stool will enter the anal canal and defecation will occur. The final stage of defecation is under our voluntary control and influenced by age, diet, prescription medicines, health, and abdominal muscle tone. The complete digestion of chyme requires chemical secretions including enzymes, hormones, and bile. Supportive digestive organs linked to the gastrointestinal tract are necessary contributors. They include the pancreas, liver, and gallbladder. The stomach and small intestine also produce digestive enzymes to break food particles into small, unbound nutrients that can be efficiently absorbed. Enzymes are like workers on the assembly line in a factory. They do the work, but are directed by supervisors, which are digestive hormones. There are several hormones, including gastrin, insulin, and glucagon, that regulate digestion. Some are produced in the stomach and the small intestine. Technically, hormones don't digest food, but instead regulate the function of other cells to control digestive secretions, gastric and pancreatic secretions, for example, and regulate the type and amount of enzymes secreted. Hormones are stimulated by various dietary factors, and their activity varies according to the digestive function required. Hormones influence gastrointestinal motility, stomach emptying, gallbladder contraction, insulin release, cell growth, intestinal absorption, and even hunger. The hormone gastrin, for example, causes the release of gastric secretions that contain the enzyme gastric lipase. Gastric lipase contributes to the digestion of short and medium chain fatty acids, which are primarily found in human milk or in dairy products. These types of fatty acids are found less often in the diets of adults, as most of the dietary fats grown-ups consume contain long-chain fatty acids. Thus, gastric lipase is not a particularly important enzyme in adulthood. Gastrin also stimulates the secretion of hydrochloric acid, increases gastric motility and emptying, and increases the tone of the lower esophageal sphincter. Two other important hormones, insulin and glucagon, are produced in the pancreas and play important roles in your body, not the least of which is in regulating blood sugar levels. Among the other organs that are not part of the gastrointestinal tract, yet are essential to digestion and absorption, are the liver and gallbladder. Along with the pancreas, these three accessory organs are essential. The liver consumes serum cholesterol, for example, to make bile, a greenish-yellow liquid that is important for fat emulsification and absorption. Bile is then shunted over to the gallbladder for concentration and storage. As mentioned, the pancreas makes the hormone insulin and glucagon, as well as some important digestive enzymes. When the time is right, the enzymes are injected into the small intestine. Weighing about three pounds, the liver is the largest gland in the body. It is the primary chemical processing plant in your body and is so important that you couldn't survive without it. In addition to its key role of producing bile, the liver helps regulate the metabolism of carbohydrates, fats, and protein. 
The liver also stores several nutrients, including vitamins A, D, E, B12, and the minerals iron and copper. It is the major reservoir of glycogen, the storage form of glucose held in reserve for emergencies. The liver is also essential for processing and detoxifying alcohol. So treat your liver kindly. Bile has two main functions, fat breakdown and emulsification. Bile breaks up large fat globules into small, suspended fat droplets about one millimeter in diameter. This action enhances the absorption of fats because it increases the surface area exposed to fat-digesting enzymes, the lipases. The breakdown of fat also increases the rate of fat digestion. Emulsification is the dispersion of fats, or the surrounding of fat, with hydrophilic, water-soluble, and hydrophobic, fat-soluble portions. This action is similar to the detergent activity of dishwashing soap on greasy dishes. Bile lowers the surface tension of fats, thus allowing water-soluble enzymes to contact the fat and ultimately proceed with fat digestion and absorption. The liver produces about 500 to 1,000 milliliters, that's about two pints, of bile each day. Bile consists of water, bile acids and or salts, cholesterol, phospholipids, pigments, and several ions. The salts and phospholipids in the bile are crucial for digestive function because of the role they play in fat emulsification. Bile salts also enhance the activity of digestive enzymes and the absorption of fatty acids, cholesterol, and fat-soluble vitamins. Bile is collected, drained, and released into the gallbladder. The gallbladder is attached to the liver and stores approximately 30 to 50 milliliters, that's one to two ounces, of concentrated bile at a time. The bile is released into the GI tract in response to the ingestion of fat. Bile aids in fat digestion but isn't digested itself. Whereas some compounds of bile leave the body in the stool, the bile acids are reabsorbed and returned to the liver to be reused in bile. Sodium bicarbonate and several powerful specific enzymes essential for the final stages of food digestion are produced in the pancreas. Sodium bicarbonate neutralizes the acidic chyme by raising its pH, creating a neutral environment. This protects certain enzymes that would otherwise become inactivated in an acidic environment. Some of the most important enzymes produced in the pancreas are amylase, which digests carbohydrate, lipase, which digests fat, and trypsin, chymotrypsin, and carboxypeptidase, which digest protein. The enzymes from the pancreas are responsible for the digestion of almost all, that's about 90%, of ingested fat, about half of all ingested protein, and half of all carbohydrates. Pancreatic secretion is regulated by various hormones. When acidic chyme from the stomach arrives in the small intestine's upper section, the duodenum, intestinal cells are triggered to release the hormone secretin. Secretin stimulates the pancreas to secrete copious amounts of sodium bicarbonate and various digestive enzymes. When partially digested proteins and fat enter the small intestine, the intestinal cells secrete the hormone cholecystokinin. This powerful hormone also stimulates the pancreas to secrete digestive enzymes, slows down gastric motility, which controls the pace of digestion. Cholecystokinin's effect on the brain is to stimulate satiety and close off sensations of hunger. So that is how your digestive system is supposed to work. 
It is a system that adapted to a diet of natural, whole foods. But when we send modern hybrid or processed foods through the GI tract, the system can struggle or become damaged. The damage might then become self-perpetuating, setting off a cascade of events leading to illness. We will look at a major group of offending agents in the next podcast. They are the lectins and lurk in some common foods of today. More on that in episode 11. Thank you for listening. The Healthy Geezer theme music is by the Camden Jazz Trio. You can find episodes of the Healthy Geezer podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, Pandora, iHeartRadio, Podcast Gang, Google Podcasts, Radio Public, and wherever you go to access podcasts. Episodes, as well as written transcripts, plus blogs on additional topics of health and nutrition, are also available at our website, marktimmon.com. If you like what you hear, please tell a friend to tune in to the Healthy Geezer podcast, and be sure to subscribe by hitting the subscribe button on your podcast directory's platform. If you have any questions, I will do my best to answer them. Just send an email to mark at marktimmon.com. That's Mark with a K and Timmon with one M. All as one word, M-A-R-K-T-I-M-O-N dot com. Thank you.